RPC Sermons Podcast. Today's episode is a special episode from our Facebook Live series entitled Closing the Distance. These are unscripted conversations with the pastors of RPC and various special guests reflecting on topics from our ongoing sermon series. If you're interested in learning more about this community of faith, visit roswellprez.org. This is Jeff Myers, senior pastor at Roswell Presbyterian Church with our Closing the Distance podcast. My guest today is Dr. Lerone Martin, the Martin Luther King Jr. Centennial Professor and Director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. Lerone, thanks for being with us today. Man, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. When did you, uh, when did you just get this new job? I've been here now for 14 months. 14 months, so a little over a year, a little over a year. Well, Lerone, I, I forgot to highlight one of the more important parts of your resume, that you were on the Princeton Theological <laughs> Seminary. Why do I don't have that shirt? Any? I don't have that shirt. I'm so upset I don't have that shirt. You don't have it? Oh, man. I wear, oh, I wear, my God, I'm so upset I don't have that shirt. I wear I wear it around with pride around my neighborhood. People are like, wow, you must have been quite an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were a great basketball player. And let it be clear about that. You had an amazing shot. You were you were Luca Doncic before Luca. <laughs> well, hyperbole will take you flatter uh, <laughs> take you a long way, Lerone. Slow, controlled movement, never out of control, great shot. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. Well, I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but in my first year at Princeton Seminary, they they made all the first years come to an orientation and they had kind of the first, um, they had a convocation kind of thing and you were the featured speaker, kind of like the model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember. And I remember I was like, I got to get to know this guy. He knows what he's talking about. Wow. I don't remember that, man, but. I'm glad I didn't turn you away. I'm glad you still decided to, to, to come to Princeton Seminary. I but I realized I was like, I really need to uh, up my academic game because uh, this is this is real. This is real stuff. Well, you are also the author of two books, Preaching on Wax, The Phonograph and the Shaping of Modern African-American Religion. And then you also just had a new book come out called The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover. How the FBI aided and abetted the rise of white Christian nationalism, and uh, fantastic books, Lerone. And uh, thank you, man. Thank you. Rewards, and you're going to get a lot of acclaim, and probably take some shots too for uh, <laughs> for maybe this new book. <laughs> but I know you can handle it. But one of the things I love in your dedications to your books, in yeah. this first one, you dedicate it to your grandparents. And uh, both sets. And then I love in your new book, you dedicate to your parents. 
Yeah. And I, I think it speaks to this consciousness that you know where you come from and that you s stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before you. We, I always talk about people's Mount Rushmore's, like who are the who are the pivotal figures in their lives that have shaped them, helped them think, study, ask questions, direct them. Who are the people on your Mount Rushmore? Wow. And first of all, thank you for noticing that. I really appreciate that about the acknowledgments because that is what I was, what I'm going for is recognizing where I come from. So I, I would certainly say um, my parents, um, my mom, my dad informed me about um, the type of human being that I should be in the world. Um, you know, they were, they had very different ideas. I think of the Christian faith in terms of their theological commitments. My mother was Pentecostal, my dad was Baptist, but they both agreed on the idea about treating people fairly and trying to, uh, no matter, you know, where people were watching or not, try to have a sense of integrity and try to have a commitment to, you know, keeping your word. If you say you're going to do something, then you do it. And if you don't, that you need to be responsible and say, you know, I dropped the ball, I couldn't do it. So I, I really, my parents, I think, were really influential in shaping me and, and the expectations about the type of human being I should be. Um, I think in terms of as an adult man, um, thinking about my faith commitments, I'm, I'm heavily influenced by Martin Luther King Jr., I think that, you know, having this job as the director of the King Institute and helping to um, promote and, uh, and preserve his legacy is the dream come true. You know, we published the King Papers Project. So that's, that's a dream come true. So King is on my Mount Rushmore. And then I would say, you know, in terms of uh, my commitment to, to wanting to see justice and how I understand it in the world, I would say it's 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 a it's a woman by the name of Ella Baker, mm. and Ella Baker um, believed in community organizing and believed in the development of leadership in everyday people, and that you know you you shouldn't wait for um, some charismatic figure to come and save you that you should organize in your own community to try to exact change. So I'm very influenced by her as well. That's awesome. Um, yeah, Ella. And, and, yeah, I was going to say, no pressure uh, on <laughs> uh, editing and publishing uh, King's papers. <laughs> like, like only one of the most famous, great Americans that we have. And so that's yes. a lot of, that's a lot of weight on your shoulders. Yeah, it's, a, it's, and it's, it is, but it's also a privilege, you know, because, We've um, we've done my predecessor um, completed seven volumes, those seven right above my head right yep. there, and um, we're working on volume eight now. And volume eight, God willing, will be out um, next year. We've already sent it out to readers, so we've got um, some great feedback, and that's going to cover King's life from nineteen September of nineteen sixty two to December of sixty three. So we're covering everything from you know, the March on Washington, I Have a Dream speech, um, the letter from Birmingham jail. And so we're really excited about that, having publishing things like the copy of King's program from the March on Washington. And there's this amazing little note on it, you know, that says, um, Reverend King, it's just been announced that W.E.B. Du Bois has died in Ghana. 
like someone should make an announcement on the platform, you know, so like real time stuff on the program. And um, so we're just excited about that. So it's, it's a privilege for me to be, to be a part of this uh, enterprise. That's really awesome. Uh, when you, uh, you know, you're, you read a lot, like I just like your, your, your end notes. It's just like, it's like, I, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around like how many hours you sat alone. Yeah. Um, actually, I remember when I was interested in doing a PhD, I, I met with Dr. Peter Paris, the great yes. ethicist um, at, at Princeton Seminary. And, I, and he's, he was like, Jeff, do you realize how much alone time you have to spend as a scholar? I, I don't know if you could do it. I was like, yeah, I've got too much ADHD. to. <laughs> <laughs> but like, when you think about the authors that you return to again and again, not but like for encouragement, for spiritual yeah. sustenance, who are these people that have informed you that you return to again and again? Oh man, um, I think in terms of the writing process, when I'm having trouble articulating myself, you know, I often turn to James Baldwin. I find James Baldwin, um, just the way that he writes to be beautiful and it always, I find it refreshing. So. I'll just sometimes pick up, you know, my Baldwin reader and just read an essay. It doesn't have anything to do with what I'm doing. It's just maybe I just need to see how he puts words together and how he expresses himself, how he tells a story. So I often return to, to James Baldwin. Um, and when I'm thinking about narrative, um, I often will read Maya Angelou because I find her ability to communicate pathos and her ability to communicate emotion, to describe a scene um, is just unparalleled. So those are the two folks that I read in terms of my writing process. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, my spirituality, um, I think again, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, is it important for me? You know, and I also found um, in reading a wonderful book by Jean Theo Harris about um, Rosa Parks, Hmm. the um, rebellious life of Rosa Parks. I also find um, a strength in the stillness in Rosa Parks. So um, I, I think about them um, a, a great deal in my own spiritual formation. When I hear Rosa Parks, I just think about Outcast. I know, man. <laughs> I know. And, you know, you know, and Gene Theo Harris does such a good job, if I remember correctly, in that book, of talking about that and about how the, the the debate around that, like some people were like, it was an amazing song and it introduced a whole new generation to Rosa Parks. Like go, 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 go check out Rosa Parks. And then others were, you know, saying, no, it's a copyright infringement. They should be sued. And, but um, yeah, that song, man, you know, it, 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 hopefully it encourages people to go and read the book, The Rebellious Life worlds of parks because she had an amazing life absolutely amazing absolutely life. and it wasn't like arbitrary or an accident that you know she went to sit right. down right this there was there a lot you know, i'm thinking go. about her at the highlander school like all of that training you you, and i think she deserves a probably a lot more respect than po the popular imagination would give her as if she was just tired you know that there was so there a lot go. going there on you go. there you go there you go you're exactly right and that's what the book points out as an entire life of activism and commitment and shaped in many ways by her uh, Methodist faith. I believe she was 
AME or AME Zion okay. and shake by that. Shake by Love that. It. Okay, you're an educator. I mean, obviously, we've talked about you're an author and academic, but you're also a teacher. You're an educator. Yes. And, you know, a lot of us don't have a Lerone Martin in our lives, you know, to, to help teach us and educate us. But how can we become better readers and interpreters of texts and mm. books? Man, that's a great question. I, you know, I think I'm shaped by my divinity school training, and I think that context is important. And so I think thinking about a text in its historical moments, I think is important. When a book was written, what's the context and, 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 the, and the author finds themselves in and what, how does that then illuminate the text in a new way? I think that I'm really influenced by that. So whether I'm reading a history book or even my own book, right? Uh, um, thinking about um, um, the phonograph book, I was living in Atlanta in graduate school and was really taken by the rise in the early 2000s of televangelism. And so it made me think like, how did all this start? Like, when did, when did, when did, when did um, um, people of faith become so accustomed to buying their sermons and expressing their faith through commerce in the marketplace? And I started thinking about this question and it, it led me to the phonograph. And when in the 20th century, when, when ministers began to buy and sell their sermons on record players. So I think that learning, knowing the context in which a text was written, I think can help illuminate a number of things and questions. I think I take that to the Bible, right? I try to think about, you know, where the apostle Paul, where he finds himself when he's writing and what's the world around Jesus, the Jesus that why Jesus would call someone a fox. Like, what is that? What is that all about? Like, what, like, what does that mean? And knowing what it means in, in the time that Jesus lived about what it means to call someone a fox, like that illuminates so much about Jesus's character, what he's saying about Herod, what he's, you know, um, 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 the context, what his audience would have understood. So I think for me, trying to do the, the work behind the curtain, I think illuminates so much, even if it's just, one sentence, you know, if you can go behind the curtain, one sentence can just illuminate a whole new world. Right. Well, I think uh, yesterday I talked about our friend Jonathan Walton's book, A Lens of Love, uh, reading yeah. the Bible in its world for our world. And into my mind, I mean, that book is probably the best book I've read for a general audience about yes. doing what you're talking about, you know, looking at the social history, the context. And uh, yes, if just fantastic so if folks want to check that out that would be a good place to kind of do kind yeah, of and about. i completely agree with you and um he is now the president of our alma mater i know man the eighth president yeah. Can you believe there's only been eight presidents at princeton seminary oh my god i didn't even think about the number yeah i they sent out and i just i was like is that a typo eight that's it so what what's the founding it's the well, 19th think, century. No, it wasn't. I think, well, I think it was because it used to be a part of Princeton University. Oh, okay. And then when it broke away, I think in the early 20th century, it became its yes. own. Yes, it did. That's, that's right. probably why. That's, but still, why. that's still, that's still 100 years. Yeah, still. Like, I mean, if you can get that job, you can hold it for a while. So <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be praying for wow. John. That he does, yes, um, we will, man. Lord, we'll be praying for that, brother. 
Yeah, I, I think we, there's nobody better that they could have chosen to kind of lead. I agree with you, 100%. Um, in the future. Okay, what, um, what, okay, I, I want two questions. One okay. is, what essential books do you think everybody should read? Okay. Mm. You know, and then what of King's work that, that we don't consider essential reading that we should read? So like, yeah. you know, like the I Have a Dream speech, every, or, um, a letter from Birmingham jail like ever I mean if you were in high school in America you hopefully have read that numerous yeah. times but what is something maybe off the beaten path that we should also engage with yeah um I would say you know, our website I have to say give a plug is, is pretty amazing um and our website the King Institute at Stanford we have a number of things um, about Martin Luther King Jr. that you know just don't necessarily uh you know come into the picture when we talk about him so our website's a great place to start but i would say in terms of king he has a speech he gave in 1967 at stanford and it's on actually on youtube and it's called the other america and he articulates there how he understands race poverty and militarism all three coming together and he even advocates in 1967, what he advocates for is one way to alleviate, alleviate poverty is universal basic income. And he argues that, you know, there's a way to make Americans consumers, make them whole, it'll help the economy, help people out of poverty. So that's a great speech. If you just want to check on YouTube, The Other America, Stanford University, 1967. In terms of King's books, I think his last book, as a great book to read. And that's where do we go from here? Chaos or community. And that book, he lays out a plan moving forward of how he thinks America needs to proceed if it's not going to approach spiritual death, spiritual and moral death. So I think that book, where do we go from here is a powerful book um, that King wrote. And I, I appreciate you asking me this question because I think we've often been led to read about him in our lives other than those two speeches you mentioned, but not necessarily read King. And when Coretta, when Coretta started the King Papers Project, that was her aim. She wanted people to actually read her husband's work and not just read others' reflections upon him. So I think that, thank you for asking me that question. I think that reading King is, is very important. And every, um, I mean, part of the way I can contribute to that project is like every MLK Day weekend, I. I try to quote, tell a story or quote something from King that's not, I have a dream. It's not letter from yes. Birmingham jail. Um, you know, yes. world house chaos or community. Right. Um, and you know, that's, and the thing is, the thing is, Rev, is that oftentimes when you read some of these quotes, people are like really shocked. They're like, that's not Martin Luther King Jr. And you're like, it totally is Martin Luther King Jr. You know what I mean? Like it, it just goes to show the way that he has been frozen and that I have a dream speech. And then so when you say to people, you know, King, you know, had rigorous critiques of capitalism or rigorous critiques of police brutality, they're like, really? You know, so there's so much there um, that, that King leaves us to wrestle with. And part of that is because he just spoke so much. He was on the road sometimes, you know, 25 days out of a month, you know, and he's just speaking everywhere. So there's a volume of things that just you know, we can draw from. And he was like yeah. 39 when he was assassinated, right? I mean, 39, 39. He wasn't even 40. It's like, 
Holy cow, productive. I mean, okay. One of the things um, that I think when we think about the spiritual practice of study is Mm -hmm. like both appreciation, but critical appreciation, like enjoying something, but also being critical of it, like appreciating an author's, the point they're making, but also saying, I don't agree with certain parts. Okay. That's right. So in your book, <laughs> the new book, in your book, you do stuff. I just, I think this is just fantastic. Okay. So this is um, the, the first, the best, one of my favorite first sentences I've read in a book in a long time. Okay. This is in the prologue. You begin. I sued the FBI to write this book. Oh, just like, I was like, oh, I'm, how can I stop reading? I'm in. <laughs> so, we, and so then I think somebody might be, if they stop there, they might go, oh my gosh, Lerone hates the FBI. Like, or um, Lerone, does he not know all the good the FBI has done? Or like, does he know the right. battle against or whatever it might be? And then, then we go, this is a great book in Lerone. So we go from, um, from the very, the pro, the very first sentence of the prologue to the very last chapter, or sorry, the last page of your book in the acknowledgments. And you finish with this. And finally, a sincere thanks to the retired FBI agents who shared their stories with me. I remain in awe of your integrity and service. I just think like that powerful willing ability to be critical, but also appreciative. How do we hold those intention when we're reading and just and living in life? Well, first of all, man, I I didn't even realize until you just said it that those are the bookends of the book. You know, I didn't do that deliberately. So first of all, thank you. Secondly, you know, I love the way that you're such a you're such a you're an amazing pastor because if you pay attention to detail like that in your reading, I can only imagine the level of care that you offer the folks who are um, in your congregation, in your community. So thank you. Um, To answer your question, I would say, this is what I try to tell my students. I think we have to recognize that we can can disagree, but it doesn't equate to like hating someone, you know? And I think that's the best way to have an intention. It's like, hold those things in tension. It's like, you know, I, I, I'm seeking to defeat injustice, whether that's sexism, racism, whatever-ism, right? But I'm not seeking to, and I learned this from King, I'm not seeking to defeat people. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not seeking to, like, defeat you as a human being. I'm seeking to, like, expose and help us all move towards a more perfect union. So you you know I I you're you're a human being you're made in the image of God and I don't have to agree with you to recognize that the imago day that you reflect an aspect of the divine in some way shape or form. So I think that's still how we hold it in tension. And so in this book, I mean, I recognize the institution of the FBI and some of the horrible things that the FBI did, but I was also able to recognize a, a number of these men that I interviewed had their own personal reasons for joining the FBI. Not all of them uh, were involved in some of the evil things that happened at the FBI. Some of them quit, some of them left, some of them 
stayed as a way to try to uh, uh, make the FBI a better place. And so I think I just was trying to recognize their humanity. Even, and, and, and because I see their humanity <clears throat> and, I, and I see the Imago Day in them, I feel that it is my responsibility as a, as a scholar and as a fellow citizen and Christian to say, hey, you know, like, I think that that right there is wrong. And that's violating the human rights of someone else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's wrong. And I think the, the least I could do as a historian is to try to uh, call that out, make it clear. So hopefully we can learn from that and, and not repeat the same mistakes. So I think the answer is just to recognize the humanity of people. And I think, unfortunately, I, what makes me sad for my undergraduate students is they don't really get a chance to see that too much in our society, a space where people have really passionate conversations. And then afterwards, go get a, go get a beer or go get a, or go, or go split a pizza. Like, it's okay. I think you're wrong about this. Right. But like you're, you're, you're a human being and, you know, and, 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 and we love one another or we're, we're in the same community and hopefully the, my classroom universities more broadly faith communities can be those spaces where you know we can disagree you know what i mean like last thing i'll say is that i felt like what i saw in the fbi something that i see today is that when people have policy disagreements they're just that they're policy disagreements they right but in the with with the fbi and with the director of the fbi at the time j Edgar hoover Policy disagreements were like always a, 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 a subplot to something bigger, some bigger conspiracy, right? So it's like, oh, well, you you don't believe in this particular policy because you want to destroy America. Like, no, I actually, I don't. I just disagree with you on that thing. And I think we see that way too much in our public discourse today. Yeah, it's way too much. It's gotten out of hand. Well, okay, so... You're talking to a, a pastor, a preacher, and a faith community. Yes. What what advice can churches, or what advice do you have for us in the church to help people love God with their minds and this yeah. practice of continual education and analysis and study and self reflection in the life of the mind? What can churches do? What do you what do you see, and what is your advice to us? Man, I think that um, it is being a space and doing what you're doing now and of learning and not being afraid of the life of the mind. I think one of my frustrations growing up as a young man was feeling like there were certain churches where I went to that I was expected to check my brain at the door. And when I got to divinity school and seminary, and then when I taught at a seminary after finishing my PhD, I loved going to churches that wanted 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 um, um, members and folks who are attending to bring their whole selves. I loved that. I remember when I got to the I was teaching at Eden Theological Seminary, and there were churches in the area that would come and invite me to lead a study on religion and politics in American history. I loved doing that. It was amazing, and I loved the fact that they wanted their congregation to have a historical sense of how religion and politics in America played out. 
whether it's Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War and, 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 and the battle over slavery, or if it's concerns about John F. Kennedy in 1960 for being the first Catholic president, like the congregation wanted to know these things, right? And so I think hosting these sorts of events, what you're doing right now with this wonderful podcast series, engaging the life of the mind, that alone is so powerful because what it does is that it says the church, this faith community is saying, thinking, being critical, reading is a part of your spiritual practice. Hmm. And so when the church hosts things like that, it implicitly says, this is part of your piety. This is a part of your relationship to God. It's cultivating your brain, your intellect, the gift that God has given you. So when churches do that, to me, it's just so powerful because you give people permission to say, oh, this is part of my spiritual practice. Right, right. Well, I think, you know, you're now the director of the King Center. I think of like King, I mean, this is the thing as you start reading this stuff. And I took the uh, Paris's uh, King course at yeah. the seminary. And, I, you know, I, I grew up in the Northwest, man. Like there were like very few black people. And yes, we yes, didn't, yes, yes, I think, you know, social studies, you know, civil rights, we maybe got like a few days. We talked a lot about Native American history, but there was, and all that tortured past. But you know, yeah. and so when I moved, so when I was in seminary and I was reading this, I was like, King is a genius. Like, and I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. What what yeah. kind of like contributions to the intellectual tradition in the West and mm. America do you think are the most important um, that King made? Wow. You know, he really, he really, I, I appreciate you saying that. I think that King is really, a, um, in some sense, he's a jazz man because he pulls from so many different things. He's pulling some things from liberal theology, right? A kind of, you know, Walter Rauschenbusch, Reinhold Niebuhr, Tillich, that kind of liberal Protestant tradition as it relates to belief in the social gospel. That you, you, you we have to have a gospel and faith communities that address the conditions of life. But then I think he also pulls from the, from, and he pulls that from the, the liberal Protestant tradition, but also his own background from his um, Black Baptist upbringing, watching his father be engaged in protest. So he brings that with him too, right? And then he also brings with him the great Black preaching tradition, the musicality of his preaching, he brings that. So, I mean, he, he really brings so many things together. You get a social gospel in the tune of uh, you know the black black sermonic discourse, um, you also get the concern about the, um, 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 the human conditions, but you also kind of get an evangelical sense too about being concerned about the salvation of one's soul. So I mean, I think I think what I see in him is someone who just brings so many different traditions together and beautifully um, 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 beautifully merges them together. I mean, I think you can hear it in many of his addresses. Um, even here at Stanford, right, you know, he says something along the fact that, you know, when people say, oh, you're focusing too much on the law, you're too much of an activist, you know, the law can't make someone love you. And he says, I recognize that the law can't make a man love me. He says, but it can't stop him from lynching me. And I think that's important. Right. <laughs> and he's like, the, right. He's like, the law can't change that. The, the law can't change the hearts of men but it can change the habits of men and men's habits can then be changed. So he says, yes, it's important for individual salvation. I believe people need to give their lives to 
to make a commitment to Jesus. But there's also these other concerns we have. So I just see him bringing so many different strands, I think, of, of, of Protestant Christianity together in such a beautiful way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's really, really beautifully well said. Um, uh, what what are your hopes with the King Center? And if people have not been to the Stanford King Center website, it's totally searchable. You can search all his yes. uh, writings, speeches. It's fantastic. I use it all the time for research to say, I wonder what if King ever talked about this passage. You know, yeah, me too, me too. <laughs> and where 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 um, documents I think are up up until like about 1962, 1963. Once we get this next volume done, it'll be updated. Um, but with more documents on there, but yes, absolutely. Okay, cool. And, um, well, before I let you go, one last question, Lerone, how's your hoops game? Oh man, brother, I, I haven't hooped. So I, I, let's see in 20 in 20, well, let me just cut to the chase. It's not good. In 20, <laughs> in 20, 20, uh, 2011, I tore my my tore my Achilles playing basketball. Oh no. My left, my left one. So that was like, you know, the I was a one-foot jumper. So that was the leg I always jumped off because I'm right-handed. I took a year and a half off, started playing again, and then played occasionally, you know, with men of a certain age only. And then uh no, you know, one time playing with no 20-year-olds, man. Uh and then of course COVID hit, and I have not hooped since COVID. Yeah. So it's been like three years since I played basketball. And I'm and now that the tournament's back, I'm watching these NCAA games. I'm like, I need to get back out there, man. I you need do. to get back out there. Stanford's got a nice some nice gyms in there. <laughs> they do have some nice gyms, man. They dress some nice gyms. And I go to these, you know, Stanford basketball games and I'm looking at these guys and I'm like, in my prime. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at these tw- 20 year old, six foot eight, nine guys jumping all over the gym, you know? Um, so yeah, and, and the women's team actually is, you know, really, I mean, I, the women's team here actually probably has larger attendance than the men because the women here really, they hoop. I mean, they hoop. And there's some of the women out there that I'm like, yeah, even in my prime, I probably couldn't take her. You know what I mean? Like six foot five, they can shoot, put it on the floor. So um, there's some amazing, amazing basketball here that I have not taken part in. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lerone, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. It's been a joy to see you and talk to you again. I've learned so much. And um, best man, of thank luck you for with having the new me, book man. as you uh, kind of get that out there. And Thank uh, you for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you reaching out to me and giving me this opportunity to share. And um the next time in Atlanta, man, I promise I'll let you know. I would love to, to love to visit the church. We'd love to have you, man, anytime. All right. Thanks, Lerone. Thank you. Peace.